0: Wrong the oppressor cassette. Ellis Horse, the project from the minds of Rob Antonucci and Ryan Hetz Canavan, available on all streaming platforms. War, self-titled 7-inch. Available in black and Coke bottle clear.
1: Pick these up. At PressGangRecordsUS.LimitedRun.com
0: Welcome to Enterprise Hardcore Podcast i'm your host josh lyons on this episode we're going to be talking with chris brown i'll be doing uh, hopefully somewhat of a deep dive on some pretty cool rochester bands that he was in over the years uh as always you can give the podcast a follow on facebook and instagram at enterprise hardcore podcast on twitter at podcast hardcore uh thanks to everybody who's been uh supporting the patreon uh you've been getting early episodes lately and you'll continue to get, start getting stuff like that and Uh, There's going to be some pretty big changes coming to the podcast soon, and I think Patreon will have a pretty good uh, effect on that, so uh, keep your eyes on that. But yeah, this is episode 97. Uh, Like my guest and I were saying before I hit record, this has been a long time coming, so this should be a lot of fun. Uh, We're going to be talking with Chris Brown, though. How's everything going for you tonight, man? Doing great, man. How are you? I can't complain, man. You know it's always a juggle getting the kids to go to sleep, and you know luckily you're on the different time zone, so me having to start this at like ten o'clock or whatever, uh, doesn't affect you as much as some of my other guests. You know.
1: Yeah, I feel your pain, but it's it's pretty chill over here. It's like dinner time. No big deal.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, we'll uh, like I said, we're gonna be talking a lot about the bands you played in over the years, some current stuff, and anything else we want to get to. But uh, before we get to that, let's kind of talk about, like, your upbringing and, and everything that kind of led you to, like, punk and hardcore.
1: Awesome. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've heard you do this with a lot of people before. I had a lot of the same answers as some of the other folks you've talked to. Um, you know, I started out, like, I guess my first music memories I can think of are, like, getting some of those, like, BMG CD catalog things where you just order a bunch of stuff. And, like, at that age, you don't really know even what it is but I remember getting like, uh, I got a better than Ezra CD got blues traveler. Um, man, those might be the only two I remember. Oh, the wallflowers. Um, I think, I think Ben Coton might've mentioned the wallflowers on his, and I did a little fist pump, but, uh, the first, the first sort of bridge in any sort of like alternative music I remember was getting uh, melancholy and the infinite sadness CD for my birthday one year. And that sort of changed things a little bit early on. Um, and then I guess fast forward, my first concert, like bigger concert, was um, Beck, The Cardigans, and Atari Teenage Riot at the Palestra Gymnasium at U of R in 1996. I don't know if you ever went to a show at that venue. Did you? I
0: think, I think, I, I think that's where I saw the Ramones. That, that's a big place at U of R. Nice, yeah, pretty big, yeah. I'm pretty sure that's where they played it. I don't, I don't know if I have the ticket stuff from that still, but I, I could look it up, 96 Ramones. Yes. So,
1: but anyways, yeah. So that was sort of a game changer for me too. Um, I remember for some reason my first like three shows were really formative. There was that, um, and then I went to Green Day and Sam I Am at Dome Arena in 97. I think it was 97, maybe 98. Um, and then Deftones, Quicksand, Snapcase at the Armory. The next year and i know like a lot of people you've had on were at that show and i think i was a little too young to fully appreciate especially quicksand i didn't really get it at that point i was there for deftones but looking back there was a lot of like easter eggs in there and stuff that i would later come to love a lot
0: yeah shout out to all those bands but i don't know if i, I still don't really get quicksand i guess and <laughs> i'm like 41 so
1: i'm kind of more a rival schools guy yeah
0: I also want to give a shout out to Better Than Ezra too cuz that was oddly enough one of my first concerts. Uh, nice. It had opened like 94 or 95. Is it, was that the was that the CD that you had too, the first one? Yeah, with like um, with good
1: on it. That was like the big Yeah, single. exactly. Yeah. I was yeah. too young to go see yeah, it live, awesome.
0: but <laughs> Yeah. That was popping off. I feel like I saw them again years later at one of those like party in the park or, you know, uh what's that uh batavia downs type shows or whatever you know what i mean yeah they they were kind
1: of they did the radio circuit a lot i wouldn't be surprised if they played like lilac fest or (laughs) something
0: yeah so um we're not really bridging the gap too far i i remember you were real young in like 99 and you booked at least
1: one show at st joe's like were you already doing other shows too or man so yeah, so I was kind of trying to piece together the timeline for this, and uh I could be wrong. Now, did you do was the last Dense show one of yours? I couldn't remember. That was my buddy Spindle,
0: uh who ran like uh SFW Fanzine and SFW Records. Uh he 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 did a band with Adam Whistler and a couple of those dudes, uh the Crimson Guard. Right. Uh but long story short, no, that was him that did that one. Okay, so um,
1: that was like if, if I remember right, that was February 2000, maybe. Which that sounds right. It, it feels like I, I guess I was almost surprised that it wasn't earlier than that because that was really the first like the first recognition I have of like going to a hardcore show and really understanding it and wanting to be a part of it was that show. That was like before that, I had sort of done the like, you're younger and genres like maybe, take on outsized importance to you. And you're like, I'm either a pop punk kid or a new metal kid or whatever. And I went the pop punk route and like did new rule. I remember I used to talk on, I did want to mention this, uh, the youth gone wild message board. Remember that, which eventually became Rochester, hardcore CJB and all the rest. Like I used to go on there and talk as Chris new rule when we were just doing like a pop punk band and had like bleach blonde hair and all the rest. And like, it seems like it was such a long progression to getting into hardcore, but it was really just like six months. It was like doing that band and that was maybe 99. And I think I can't remember doing any shows outside of like the teen center, though I might've tried. And like in hindsight, it was probably embarrassing because I didn't really know what was going on yet. I just knew I wanted to do stuff. And then that dense last show, um, seeing especially Standfast and the chuds at that show was like a really big moment for me. Um, met Rory before they played, had never heard a note of Standfast, didn't really know like what it was going to be. I just sort of had an idea in my head of like, this is going to be something more visceral, something more like maybe emotional, I guess, than like what I had been listening to as yet. And it totally was that. It was really weird. Like it just, I had a vision in my head of maybe what I was about to see. And it was all of that and more. And like, I bought a shirt before I even saw him. I was just ready to be a super fan. And from that point on, it was like, I just really wanted to be a part of anything Rochester Hardcore I could be a part of. And I mean, this isn't really answering your question, but the other thing that feels like longer in between was um, from that to actually moved away from Rochester for a while. And it feels like all this didn't happen that closely, but I moved away that summer. So like my first show was February or first real hardcore show was February. And then I moved away to D.C. in August of that year and lived there for two years so I think back to like all these shows going on and there were some that I was back here for and some that I missed. And I remember seeing it all go down like every time Bane would play the bug jar and I couldn't be there. And I think it just like made me even more like intensely want to be a part of everything, just not being there physically, some of it.
0: I'm not sure that I ever realized you were gone for that long before. I guess we'll get to that in a second too. But did did I skip over anything by, by bringing up the local scene in like the early 2000s in between going to those early... Like more like rock concerts, uh, so to speak, I guess? <sighs>
1: um, no, not really. You know, like I think, you know, Matt Chalinoor and Jimmy Stat they talked about that era kind of a lot and do a much better job of it than I do. But like like I said, I was in that band New Rule with, I guess I could give a couple of shout outs because like I don't really keep in touch with dudes from that band at this point so much, but some of them are doing cool things. Like uh, the drummer is this guy, Brian Heiss, who now lives in Brooklyn, and does he does like a natural wine store, and he runs a place called Brooklyn Hots, which is like a garbage plate place in Brooklyn, and it's like super seems to do super well. I follow him on IG; it's really cool. Um, and I like try to keep tabs on what some of those Penfield guys are doing from back in the day. There's like some of the other bands we were doing. There's guys that are like professional jazz musicians now, which is really funny because they went on and did real things with their musicianship. Um, but other than that, it was pretty much like yeah, just doing teen center stuff and pop punk bands straight into like having my mind blown by stand fast and just really wanting to be a part of that. Yeah. So, uh,
0: I guess kind of talking about the DC thing then, did you, uh, did the breaking project come after that? or then like when you came back here, so to speak, I guess, or did, we were doing that like in in between too.
1: It, it was sort of the whole time. Like, so I think breaking projects started definitely before I moved away and that was, one of the things that ultimately brought me back was I kind of just, you know, I was like a shithead teenager and, and moved sort of against my will. There's like a whole story there, but uh, I don't know. Like I lived in like Northern Virginia, right outside DC. And the whole time I was there, I didn't, I had a hard time like making friends. It was sophomore and junior year of high school. I already had a lot of friends back here and Proj had started and in my mind at the time it was like, Oh, we're finally doing something cool. And like, we were starting to gain acceptance in that Rochester scene and like get invited to play your shows and John 25 shows and stuff that at the time that was like the ultimate pinnacle. I was like, well, I don't want to leave now. Like this is finally happening. And so the whole time I lived there, it's another thing like Matt was talking about where I, in hindsight can't really believe my parents were as cool and permissive as they were. But I used to, I had like a Jeep Cherokee and I used to just load it up with gear and just drive up from D.C. back up to Rochester just to like have Praj practice and like play a show. And I come up for a weekend and drive back down by myself and just listen to like Rush cassettes in the car. And <laughs> that was like my existence for two solid years of high school. So, yeah, Proj started beforehand and sort of kept going the whole time. And it's funny, like Matt told the whole story and nothing he said was wrong. But it's like I forget which parts of this I was even physically in Rochester for versus... Like, when I moved back, it was late summer of 2002. So, like, most of, like, I actually don't think Matt joined until after I was back. And, like, we started to, like, we did the full length in the last three songs in the tour. That was all after I moved back. So, definitely wanted to get back here, <laughs> there.
0: Were you going to, like, shows and stuff in, uh, like, Virginia, D.C. area, too, then? Or mainly just kind of sticking to our scene?
1: Yeah, no, I was trying to. Um, I, It was weird. You know, the school I went to was, like... It was a public school, but it was like right outside DC and, and a lot of like, it was just like a very wealthy area, I guess, for lack of a better term. And so I just didn't really, I de- there was definitely no similar hardcore scene in my specific town to speak of. Like the way Fairport and Penfield had their thing going on that people have talked about. I was kind of shocked. Like it was my first realization that Rochester was something special because that place just didn't have it. I met a few kids that were into bands, and one of which I still keep in touch with now. I pretty much had like one good friend when I lived there, and it was this guy, Parker Chandler, who now plays bass in a couple of like pretty well known like doom metal bands, uh, Wind Hand and Cough. Have you ever heard of those? Like, I forget which one. One of them was on Relapse for a while, and they still tour actively now. And like, at the time, it was like it was just a weird scene there, but I would try and go into DC for shows. Like, I actually saw some really good shit. Um, I saw. Man, I think it was the interviews with David Frost CD release show for Majority Rule. And it was like all the bands that when they came to Rochester would do great. It was like Majority Rule, City of Caterpillar, Darkest Hour, Off Minor played that show. Maybe some more too. It was a really big show. Um, I saw Standfast a couple times when they came down and did weekends. Like I saw him in a living room in Virginia for like five people and then saw him in Baltimore with Majority Rule at a really good show. Um, That was cool. But yeah, I still mostly felt connected to here and was still also a little bit young. Like I was just getting my driver's license. Like I got my driver's license and then started driving back up to Rochester all the time. And I probably should have made a more earnest effort to like become a part of what was going on. I was on like the fear.com board. I don't know if you remember that. Um, And like I tried, but it just, yeah, my heart wasn't in it, I guess. Yeah
0: like going to those stand fast shows like were you already friendly with those guys like when you would see them like living there would you like like interact with those guys and stuff or whatever
1: yeah a little bit like i maybe some of this is just self perception but i was the younger kid at the time so like i looked up to those dudes a lot and you know 3 4 years whatever the age gap is it felt a little more pronounced at the time like i was kind of going there like nervous i'm like oh i you know i don't want to like embarrass myself and like see this band whatever Um, And I just remember being really intimidated by guys like Rory and Brian and John Olick. And although John Olick actually worth mentioning was his parents were good friends with my parents. And so I was like in the room when he like got his first guitar and was learning Metallica songs. Like I never really like knew, I knew he was doing bands. And then when I later put it together that that was Standfast and that's what I liked so much, it sort of double blew my mind. But yeah, at that point, I was just kind of trying to show up and like see a band that I thought was awesome. And it wasn't really like we were friends as much. That didn't really happen until later, to be honest with you.
0: Well, you mentioned in the Deftones too, I don't know if I'll ever get Olik back on here again or not, but his brother saved my ass at a Deftones show years ago. I was going to get my ass beat just for like hardcore dancing, moshing into like, you know, bros or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. His brother, his brother went like full on like Rambo mode and just like like clean clean the whole place out. And I just got out of there for a little bit, you know. Damn. So wait, whose brother? I forget the... what Outlook's brother's name is, but shout out, shout out to that dude. He's a good dude. Nice. So you know,
1: um, I actually do yeah. remember. I have a DC story that involves you. It's not really a story, but uh, Super Bowl of Hardcore. I forget which year it was, 01 or 02. You were there. You were moshing to Bane at like three in the afternoon. You and Dan Brestrove drove down. I think maybe some others.
0: Yeah, I don't know if that's really been talked about a lot on here, because Dan was on here, but we were more talking about bad business. But that was a good show, man. He, We went to Stanfest. Speaking of Stanfest, too, there was like a Stanfest uh, Strike Anywhere show in Oleon. And we went to that. And then Dan drove all the fucking way back to Baltimore that night. And we probably rolled up in there like 5 in the morning. And I was asleep. And he said he was fa- falling asleep at the wheel and shit, too, <laughs> which I'm sure there will be stories like that to come in some of the bands you're in, you know. But. Yeah. Uh, That was a crazy show, though. I don't know if you remember. It got shut down. Do. Somebody got stabbed Uh, during AF. Uh, And Bad Brains only played, like, two and a half songs. Yes. So that's the only time I've ever seen Bad Brains, too. Yeah, this was when they yeah. were called
1: Soul Brains, wasn't it?
0: Probably, yeah. When <laughs> HR was doing the, the, the video camera gimmick or whatever and just kind of, like, videotaping himself or whatever, you know, standing on stage. I, I think that was right around the time where he started having, like, the real whatever mental... Well, I don't know what he's got going on, honestly, but something's going on, and that's why he started acting all fucked up or whatever. But yeah, it was a he was videotaping show. himself on stage. I know that, and wearing like a weird uh, jacket or
1: whatever. Yeah, it was a weird, so. weird show. I think I think Bad Luck Thirteen played, which was definitely the only time I ever saw that band. If that's the right show, that was a good example of how DC was different to me. I was like, I've never seen anything like this at like an Eli Fagan show or anything. It didn't make yeah, sense. Yeah. When you mentioned DC and shit, and then you started
0: talking about Majority Rule, I was like, in my head, I was like, I like those bands, but I more want to hear, like, like Stout and uh, Next Step Up and all that shit. You know, I know none of those bands played that show, but the last thing I'll say about that show, too, is uh, uh, rest in peace to, I think his name was Boulder from Hatebreed. He beat some dude up during Death Threat that day, too, because uh, I don't know what happened or whatever, but it was probably, like, <laughs> one of those, like, fringe type dudes who was trying to mosh weird or whatever and i i just that's when dan and i had first gotten to the show and i i barely recognized that dude and all of a sudden i saw like a fight out, and in between songs uh one of the dudes from like death threat or one of those bands just yells like you just got your ass beat by hate or some shit like that and i was like man this is like that's the dc that i was thinking of like mm-hmm. we went to a couple other shows there like that too like mad ball and shit like that and there was a lot of crazy like tough like hard dudes in that area you know yeah
1: you're kind of joking but it's like that's a lot of what i remember from trying to assimilate at that time was just a lot of fights and i was like i'm not used to fights at shows That's not really a thing um not a fight but i actually so i was seeing walls of jericho hope conspiracy fairweather and orange island that's a weird show um in vienna virginia and I had braces and was standing on the the edge of like a circle pit for Walls of Jericho. I was there for HopeCon kind of, and I don't even know why I was so close. And I got just spin kicked across the face and was like in the bathroom picking gums out of my braces and stuff. And the HopeCon drummer came and was like, "You all right, man?" It's like, "Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, yeah, I'm totally good." <laughs> that was the closest I ever got to like a DC fight. Was just getting kicked in the face by accident, but I never wanted any part of that stuff.
0: Yeah, I only went, like I said, I only went to a few shows, but they're all around that time frame, and they're, yeah, they are just, it just seemed like, you know, I think the bigger cities, I mean, I guess you've, you've played more, more, more shows in bigger cities than I have, so, but.
1: Yeah, with, oh, with the wrong kind of band to have fights, though, fortunately, never been. True. <laughs> well, yeah,
0: I guess we'll get to it, but you guys tour with, like, TUI and shit, or at least played shows with them and shit, right? Or, yeah,
1: that's true. Yeah, we did, that was honestly a great tour. We did a tour with, uh, them and Heart. um. That was pretty early on, well, pretty early in like full-time Polar Bear Club that it was awesome. I actually work with a guy now. I'm not sure if we'll get to this, but I work at a company called King's Road Merch. And uh, we hired a guy earlier this year to do like our tour stuff. And his first week, we were just sharing stories and he's like, oh yeah, I used to be a booking agent. And he booked, as it turns out, that Have Heart TUI PVC tour. And I didn't even know it until meeting him this year. And I was like, thanks, man. That was a great tour. Small world sometimes.
0: Yeah, it's really cool. It seems like a lot of stuff like that happens within, like, hardcore and shit. But I guess before we jump ahead a little bit, uh, kind of sticking with Proj a little bit. Yes. Um, so would you would you just be, like, like you were saying, you'd be traveling back and forth every weekend for, like, practice and or shows? And then, like, what, like doing the occasional weekend with those guys or whatever?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was kind of before we were really doing weekends because, yeah, so I'm trying to think. I was, like, I moved there when I was just turning 15 and move back when I was turning 70. So we didn't really start to get more active until I got back and was just there again. Um, so it wasn't like every month or every, anything, but at least once every few months I would come up just to practice and like write songs. And we were still doing recordings over that time and definitely going to, I wish I could remember which Rochester shows were like I was just in town and then driving back because there was a handful of them for sure. And it's funny, like, I'm not that surprised that you didn't remember that I didn't live here for that long, because I was always, like, mostly concerned with trying to stay a part of this scene. I almost wanted it to seem like I hadn't moved away. So, <laughs> I guess mission accomplished.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's really, yeah, it's crazy. Um, when, like, uh, when, like, I guess, uh, was, wasn't, was like, I guess we'll kind of talk about them together, because wasn't Tamroff kind of active, like, during, uh, towards the end of Breaking Project, too, or...
1: Yeah, yeah. So I guess trying to go chronologically, I got back in two thousand two. And actually I should mention one before I even got back, we were one show we played while I was still traveling back and forth was we used to play basement shows at Mike Cernowski's house in Penfield. I don't know if you ever went to one. It was all the way out in like the border of Walworth. But he used to do shows there, like I think he did a handful of them. We would play with like the Avram and I think Marla Singer Affair did one or two with us and uh, we were doing one in spring of 2002, and that was where I met my now wife, Libby, at a Mike Sarnowski basement show. And then the last standfast show that June, which was also before I had moved back, but was here for it. Um, we later got married on the 12th anniversary of that show because we had started dating at that point. So, like, Rochester hardcore is like so important to me. I can't. I don't know if I could possibly overstate it. All this stuff was like happening while I wasn't even living here and then got back in 02. And that's sort of when like shortly thereafter, Matt joined Proj. Um And then I can't remember exactly when Tamaroff started. I think it was not till maybe later 03 into 04. Um, so there was like a couple years there, which again, it feels like at the time, it felt like it was 10 years. And now it's just like a blink of an eye where we were just kind of getting better, practicing all the time, writing and recording um, stuff that I can still like close my eyes and see really vividly. But the the particulars are almost lost on me by now.
0: <laughs> One thing that I hadn't really thought about, well, I, I kind of meant to mention it earlier, I guess is asking was you, you already kind of referenced uh polar bear club being a full-time band eventually. Like, w- like when you were younger or like starting any of these earlier bands, were there ever aspirations in your mind of like, you know, doing like bands and playing music like full-time or was it always just kind of like a hobby thing for you when you first started
1: doing it? Man, I, Never, like, never specifically. I never was like, I want to, like, I don't know, I don't know what the thought would have even been, because like, I'm telling you, like, the thing that was the ultimate to me was playing, getting invited to do the cool Eli Fagan shows, the cool Java shows, the cool St. Joe shows. Like, my world was so small in a good way at that time that like that was everything, and all we really had eyes on. I, I say we, but especially me but I think everybody like I know Jimmy and Mikey and everybody kind of felt this way at the time it was like we just wanted to be like one of the cool Rochester bands like we wanted to be like Standfast really you know and yeah they got out of Rochester they did the one ill-fated tour that you guys have talked plenty about already and like I saw them when they did weekends and stuff so I had some recognition of what it was like when a band would leave town and go play and I always wanted to do that I think it was pretty natural like as time went on I wanted to do it more and more but not really until way later on did did it sort of become an idea of like, oh, I guess some people do this all the time and like don't stop after college and somehow piece together a living off of it. It just felt like it was so far from like an ambitious type of thing that like if you would have asked me at that point, do you want to do it all the time? The answer would have been yes, but like I had no idea what that could have looked like, you know.
0: It's crazy the way you just kind of laid it out cuz I'm thinking in my head now like Standfast broke down a lot of doors by like doing like m- like mini tours and like tours and stuff and and they kind of got that from like Moment of Truth and bands that came before that. And then like after them came more bands like you guys or like I guess even in between like Roses are Red wasn't exactly a hardcore band but they came a lot of those dudes came from the hardcore scene. Yep. And they broke down a lot of tor- doors by like signing to like a bigger label. And then, you know, fast forward a couple of years and we'll talk more about Polar Bear Club, obviously, like bands like you guys and such gold, like took cues from all these bands and and just went crazy with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like full time and like all these crazy tours. And it's just crazy. Like, but I, again, like kind of going back to the era we're talking about, the early 2000s. I was just curious if you had thought about it at all, because like this is around the time when you have more bands like the Every Time I Dies and the Kill Switch Engages that we starting to become more like they definitely weren't as big as they became,
1: but you could kind of see that that's the direction it was, it was heading towards. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I I mean, I definitely liked every time I die, especially at that point, but I didn't even think of them at that point as like a career band necessarily, even though like, I don't know if I still try to think of any band as a career band. It sort of ruins the mystique for me, <laughs> but like, yeah, it, it was more just like you saw the ones that I guess, it's funny, like I remember seeing bands touring all the time, but I don't remember thinking like, how did they make that work? I just didn't care. And I was like, I guess if you get the opportunity to do it, you just fucking do it and don't care. <laughs> and when it did happen for us, that's more or less how it went down. And only like later on, did we start to understand the sacrifices you make. And like, well, do you want to do this forever? Because you start to get older and there's other priorities that come into play. But I'm actually pretty proud to say that it all happened organically for the right reasons. And like, we never really did more shows or started touring or did whatever for any other reason, besides just like wanting to do more of it, I guess kind of corny, but
0: <laughs> you know uh, one thing that I, I was kind of blown away by that i had kind of also forgotten about, but, but once we started talking about it, I remembered cause I feel like it was you that had said something on, on the aforementioned message boards is, is project project recorded with uh, uh dean at uh atomic in uh, new york city right yeah and oh. so you guys were there for that obviously like you you've referenced i've had a few of these guys on other episodes that we've talked about this stuff so matt and i had talked about this a little bit But you guys were there during the blackout of 2003 but what i'm more curious about and i don't know if i really asked matt this was Like, how did that all come about? Like, did you, was that you that contacted them to record down there? You guys weren't like on a label or anything, were you?
1: No, absolutely not. Well, (laughs) technically um, there was this dude, Eric Herman, I think his name was. I don't know what he's doing now. Probably not listening, but dude went to RIT at the time and he technically put out the proj full length before that. He didn't like pay for the recording or anything like that, but he got impressed for us basically. And that was cool. So we were like, trying to have a label or something we definitely paid for every recording ourselves and like in terms of going down there I don't know for sure but knowing me at the time it was probably me that reached out and wanted to like I know we all we had a lot of conversations about where we wanted to do it and Matt did mention it was mostly because of that Suicide File record we all just like loved Twilight and like the drum sounds at the time we just thought that sounded so big and just like I don't know, not that our band sounded like the Suicide File, but we were like, if we can get this kind of production, it could be awesome. And I, you know, given the time and place, I'm still really happy with that. I think it actually did sound sort of like that. Yeah.
0: It's just crazy to think back on it because this was an era where like everybody was recording at Watchmen. Like, I don't think any bands from Rochester had gone to like, like a God City or, uh, what's Brian McTurne salad days mm-hmm. uh, studios or even like tracks East going a couple years back. Like nobody, I feel like you guys were probably the first band that like, like, uh, was ballsy enough, so to speak, to to, to, to knock on the doors of a, of a bigger producer, you know? So it's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> and was that like your first time, obviously that was your first time working with a, a bigger
1: producer then, right? I'm, I'm sure you went on to work with, actually, with more, you know, but. So we talked about this a little bit today, actually, in the lead up, I mentioned that when I was in D.C., I was in a band that later on became like more of a like a real band. I'm doing air quotes for those not watching. Uh, and the band was called The Day in Black and White. And at the time, it was like I actually met these dudes on the fear dot com message board. And they were these like George Washington University students. And I was like way younger than them. And they used to hop in their car. They were dudes from Jersey, two dudes from Jersey and one dude from Boston. And they would hop in their car and drive out to Northern Virginia and we'd practice at my parents' house. And it was just basically a converge ripoff band at that point. And then later on, like after I moved back and they had a bunch of member changes, they became this sort of like cool, like level plane kind of band. And they signed to level plane and did actually Proj toured with them later on in Proj's existence too. Um, so that's kind of a cool connection. But when I was in DC doing the early parts of that band, we went and did two songs with Kurt Ballou at God City. And I was definitely too young to like be ready for it. But that was, that did come before atomic and was like a good learning experience. I was like, all right, I definitely learned how you needed to be more prepared to work with a guy like that and maybe develop some thicker skin and yada, yada. <laughs> did you guys spend a lot of time
0: in the, in at, uh, atomic
1: or? Uh, no. I mean, it was three songs and I remember, At the time, we were pretty much like, if we can get a day a song, that's like really good, because we had done the full length in at Watchmen, 11 songs in three days the year before. So we were like, all right, we we sort of learned that that was too fast and we were too rushed and we weren't ready and blah, blah, blah. And so I think we had only three days there and it ended up being a little longer because of the blackout, like we had to come back. For an extra couple we may have been down there for five or six days because of what happened but i think we only booked three days of studio time for the three songs which at the time felt like big boy stuff to us for sure
0: oh i'd have to ask rory or one of those dudes but i want to say stanfest recorded that full length really fast and i know i went with i went this is the only time i, went, I ever went to a studio was when miles between us recorded that first seven inch that was all in one day and that was like five songs it's crazy so yeah, it's just crazy to think back, like, no bands would do shit like that now. I mean, especially now, like, everybody has, like, their own, like, equipment and stuff. So you can take your time and demo everything. And, you know, it's it's cool, but it's it's a lot different, too,
1: you know? So I think if you're a band that's maybe a little older and more ready to, like, just record live and or that's what you're going for, like, recording quickly can be a good thing. But in our case, it wasn't those things. It was just like, all right, what can we afford? And, like, let's go do it. It was definitely because of Standfast, though. I remember thinking, I think they did that full length in three days, also, which is why we were like, "Well, that's what we'll do." So,
0: <laughs> I think it was three. I remember, I remember at the end being like, yeah, that was fast." Because I feel like the other bands that I did full lengths for, it was, it wasn't like two weeks or any shit like that, but it was definitely like what you were saying, like more like one song per day or maybe squeeze like a little bit extra, but not, you know, not usually. Um, but was this around the time that? Because uh, there was a project tour too, right? Was that around the same time of the the, yeah. the atomic session, or
1: yeah? So that was all summer '03. Was the like whatever it was a little under three weeks out as far as St. Louis. Matt gave the details better. Matt actually like studied for this stuff, and he remembered a bunch of things I totally. Even as like I was always the details guy, and this whole process pointed out to me that I'm not the details guy anymore because you you lose a lot in like 20 years. Um, but yeah, that was the same summer. We did the tour and then like maybe later in August or whatever, went and did the recording. And then there was the fall where Matt mentioned we played shows where in Rochester, people finally started to show up and like care and be into it. And then he left in January and that was that. And that's sort of like around when Achilles started at the same time. Like actually, I don't know if he mentioned this, the last Avram show was the first Achilles show. Um, So that sort of was a barely an overlap there.
0: Um, I, I, I want, I definitely want to, I'll have a a million questions to ask leading up to Achilles forming. Um, but with, with the breaking project though, I'm, I kind of want to step back with, you said a day in black and white was the band you were a part of before. Yeah. Did you guys ever, ever hit up John and I to play Rochester? I don't, I don't remember you guys ever
1: playing here. Mm. We, I maybe tried, but we never did. <laughs> um, I can I think when I was living there and doing that band, we maybe played like two or three shows and did that one God City recording. And then I moved away and they like, they became a more real thing after I left for sure. It was actually kind of funny to watch them blossom into a real band. Cause I just like, I didn't really think it would be that way.
0: <laughs> so was that towards the end of project? You guys played shows together or whatever? Or?
1: Yeah, actually not even. Oh yeah. It was towards the end because it was on that three week tour. Like we did maybe the last the last bit was with Building on Fire and then there was a section before it with those guys. It was maybe like three or four shows with each of those bands. And we did a couple with the Minor Times. We like tried to meet up with other bands to make the shows better along the way because some of the ones we played by ourselves were interesting.
0: And and does Tamroff overlap with both uh, Proj and Achilles or or did Tamroff kind of disband around this? My, my Again, going back to the 20-year thing, my memory yeah. is kind of... Starting to get a little hazy, especially around 2003 when substances became a part of the picture for me, you know what I mean? Sure. So that's when my
1: memory really died. Is that around no substances didn't come into the picture for me until a couple of years later, so I should remember this. But uh, I think they did briefly all overlap. Like Achilles was sort of it was really like when Matt told us he was leaving, ruthless little shit that I was. I like started other bands cause I knew that was it, you know? So I think like Achilles started doing stuff around fall of 2003 or like doing stuff, meaning like going to cosmic jams, trying to figure out the right lineup, like starting to write songs. And then January 04 was the first Achilles show. I can't remember when Tamaroff started. And I don't remember Tamaroff really being like a response to anything practical. It was more like I, and me and Ty and Jimmy wanted to do a band that was more stylistically like that. And so I think that one was more just like, ah, oh, it's cool to overlap with Proj and Avram and stuff because it's just a different thing, you know? Um, so that might've started even a little earlier in 03, but I could be off on my timeline there.
0: Uh, the the main real curiosity with Achilles, and I don't think I've ever really asked you this before. I might've talked to Nooch about it, but like, like who knew that you played drums? Like, was that your idea to-
1: like, like how did that all like, you know, it, <laughs> I'm, I'm really. Yeah. You're pointing out to me that I skipped over some stuff. I was, I, I did make notes about, I knew you were going to do the upbringing questions and I, you know, skipped over some stuff. Cause like drums were actually more sort of my first instrument. Like my dad was a guitar player and he used to have like copies of guitar world lying around the house and like an acoustic. And I'd like, you know, look at the tabs and try to learn like green day songs or whatever. And I just remember never being that into it. Like, it's it's weird with all that's come since. Like, I obviously became a guitar player and loved playing guitar and everything. But, like, at the time, I didn't really get inspired by an instrument until drums. Um, and it was because the sort of, like, bar band that my dad was in at the time, uh, he had a drummer that was, like, he was really into, like, the WBER, like, alternative, that sort of stuff scene. Like, I forget forget exactly the kind of bands he tried to push on me but I was like a little too young to understand maybe like pavement and stuff and I was like dude I'm like 11 years old I don't really get it but like I would go down to the basement and I would watch them play and I would watch him drum and that was when I was like I would just watch what he did and then they'd end practice and they'd leave and I'd sit down at his kit and just try to do what he did and he was actually that drummer took me to the Beck Cardigan's Atari Teenage Riot show and was like, I'm gonna show you good stuff. And I have that guy to thank for really like my musical beginnings. So, like, drums were sort of the beginning. I don't even really remember why it was like, oh, playing guitar more. I think I liked writing riffs at the time. And that's why Praj and Tamaroff. And it was like, all right, all the bands needed somebody to be writing this stuff. And I wanted to be that person. So, that was easier to do the guitar. Um, but a day in black and white, I played drums in and I was not any good. <laughs> like definitely a longer learning curve for whatever reason on drums for me than with guitar Um, even though I was more enthusiastic about it and even thinking back to like the beginning of Achilles I volunteered myself it was kind of like we had tried to start out with Tyler Farron from Building on Fire and Tamaroff on drums Um, we had a couple practices and like it just wasn't really clicking the right way like Everything was kind of sounding like Building on Fire, which I was into because I liked Building on Fire, but I think that's not really what Rob wanted and it wasn't the vision for the new band. Um, And then we practiced once or twice with this dude, Jamie, Jamie Ziegler, who ended up going to like a ton of Achilles shows and became like a good friend of the band, but it just didn't really click with him either. He was in that band Taken by the Burning. You remember them? I think you put him on a couple shows. Uh, And so like we had like cycled through a couple drummer ideas and... I think Rob tells it this way too. At a certain point I was like, all right, fuck it. You know, like I can't, I can't necessarily execute it, but I know what we want to write. And I know the sensibility of the type of art we're trying to make. And so I always sort of like let that come first with the drums. And I didn't really feel confident on it as an instrument until like all the way later at hospice and stuff. So it took years of like every time we would do a recording, I'd be like, man, fuck this recording. But (laughs) It was definitely my idea to do it, just because I honestly love to play maybe even more than guitar at that point.
0: Is it, it's got to be a completely different approach uh, playing drums live versus
1: playing guitar live, though, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, I'm sure other people have said this and probably say it all the time, but maybe it's worse as a guitar player. I was that drummer that would always get, like, just... I would hit too hard, play too fast, tire myself out too, too soon into a set, and I need to, like, learn to chill out a little bit I don't think I really learned that until like after Achilles was done how to like play heavy music, but be a little more controlled about it. I was always just so excited to be bashing. It felt more cathartic. And like, even as a guitar player, like during PBC and later stuff, like being energy guy on stage was sort of my thing. And it took a long time to learn how to like balance that with sounding good in a real way, <laughs> like, not just like, Oh, it's cool. Cause he's moving around. So it sounds good enough, but like, Actually playing tightly while feeling it. Um, So yeah, it's definitely a lot different. And I struggled with just like, you know, I remember Achilles had this stretch where we would come back and play shows every couple years and like less often, but still do it. And the first time we did it, I just as soon as the set ended, I ran outside Lost Horizon and just threw up my entire stomach. Cause I just was like not in shape for it. And I just got too excited. And it's like, you practice at one speed and intensity and then you play a show at another, just cause you're excited. I was totally that guy guilty of it all the time.
0: So I guess with that being said, I'm guessing early on, especially like in the early shows, there were like learning curves or, or maybe not as much. Cause you had played in other bands
1: with, with the drums with a day in black and white, I guess. I mean, I always, I always thought there was like, I think, you know, Probably looking back on a lot of the bands from that time, including like, you know, I've talked about Standfast like 10 times already. Like if I were to watch a Standfast set now, I would probably be critical of their performance. I would nitpick certain, like, oh, they're a little out of tune here or their tempo gets off here or whatever. But like at the time, I you know, you just don't think about that stuff. And I'm sure to other people's credit, because I remember how special it all felt, like there were definitely people watching, what we were doing that didn't care about those things, but I wasn't one of them. <laughs> so like, it definitely was a process. Like actually before a day in black and white, I played in when I was in DC, I'm jumping around chronology all the time. Sorry about that. But like when I was living in DC, I played in a bar band with my dad and like sort of learned how to like just play stupid covers. Like we would do like hotel California, do a bunch of gin blossoms, like just, you know, all the hits of rock from the seventies, eighties and nineties kind of thing. And like, I'd be out till like two in the morning on Thursday nights, like playing in this bar band, playing three sets of covers with my dad and some old guys. And like, I sort of learned some drums from that, but didn't really learn the right lessons that could carry over into being in an Achilles type band. So like I was trying, and especially the years in DC that were a little more solitary. I was trying to like learn the craft, but it was just youth. And like, I think, I actually think I learned more drums by eventually watching other drummers more often. Like when PBC was touring a lot, I was never playing drums, but I think I got better just by like watching all of those very professional drummers and how they approached it every night. And I was like, ah, oh, some light bulbs went off even after I was playing as much. So
0: I guess before we get into like the Achilles tours and records and stuff, one other kind of question jumping around and, and it's, and, uh, pull Pulling back the curtain a little bit on the episode. It's my fault a little bit, too, for not sending uh, Chris the outline beforehand. Uh, shout out to my family and, you know, my son with the preschool. We're all over the place these days. So, fun weekend. Uh, karate, uh, black uh, white belt, uh, advanced white belt testing yesterday and mm-hmm. this and that. So, you know, he passed. Good, but congrats. Um, but anyways, long story short, again, uh, uh, jumping back to kind of the beginning of Like you, you, you were saying before about kind of being nervous around like Stanfast and stuff when you would see them at shows when you were living in DC. So how about like when you were first playing in Achilles with like Rob and Rory and those guys, like, was there any kind of like nervousness at all with that in mind, you know?
1: Yeah, that's a cool question. Um, I mean, definitely with Rory, like I, I distinctly remember, so Rory started playing with us before I switched to drums Um, There was like, at least maybe I'm, hopefully I'm not wrong about this, but one of the practices with Jamie Ziegler on drums, it was still Rob and I both playing guitar. And like the first time Rory just started screaming, whatever, he didn't even have anything written. But the first time I just heard his voice over something I was doing, that was like very memorable. I was like, all right, I got the chills and I was like geeking out a little bit, like turning around in the practice space so they couldn't see me smiling. Like that was a cool moment. Um, not to like belittle Rob here or anything. I think it's just more that like the Proj building on fire tour we did together, that sort of humanized Rob for me a little bit. I saw his goofy side and like, we started Achilles together. Like I think of us as like, you know, we were getting together. I was crashing on his couch and like, we were trying to find the right combo of people. So Rob was already sort of like normalized to me by then, even though I looked up to him as a guitar player so much. Like he was the first, he was the first guitar player that I ever took note of, how he was a machine live. Like it just, he was just never fucked up as I remember it. Like just was always rock solid, like carrying the tempos of the band. He was just like the sturdy guitar player. He's still like that to this day, but I didn't really like, I wasn't like nervous and geeking at that stage with him kind of still was with Rory a little bit, but then when Josh Dillon joined the band, that sort of leveled the whole playing field. Cause he was even, you know, three, four years younger than me. And I think he would be okay with me saying this. He sort of looked up to Proj in the same way I looked up to Standfast and it just became like all bets are off and like, it sort of really humanized everything for us pretty quick.
0: Now I know there was the European torch. I'll have some questions about like, I feel like I've asked Rob this too. Like how much, uh, like us touring did you guys do or have you guys done?
1: Uh, man. So we did a few. We never did like a full U.S. Achilles never made it to the West Coast. Kind of would still like to. Now that I live here, I'm like, hey, why don't we do like a fly-in or something? I don't know. But uh, we, we definitely did like a bunch of summer tours. And I think we did one or two that were like Christmas break or spring break of me being at college, um, where we do like a week up and down the East Coast. Uh, and I just... In my head, every single tour was, was with Engineer from Syracuse. <laughs> I know that wasn't actually the case, but we did a lot with Engineer. They were just like our family at that point. Um, and every, I yeah, I just, I can't really remember how many we did. It's kind of blasphemous, but we did at least two or three like multi-week US things. Like when we went down to Louisville to record the Dark Horse, that was in the winter of like 04, 05. And I think we did some touring up down and or back from that. I can't remember. And little things like that. We would try to get creative with it because like Rob was a teacher and I was in college full time and Josh was still in high school. And so we all had schedules that were like we weren't about to hop in the van for a month or anything, but we were as active as any band pre full time was for me, for sure.
0: And not really to be off topic, but with Achilles, you're talking
1: about going to school. What were you going to school for at the time, like law school or something or? Uh, undergrad i went for political science and philosophy so like kind of pre-law yeah
0: okay that was just you never what's that you never ended up doing anything with any of that or anything
1: though or um well i went to law school and then dropped out so that was sort of doing something with it um polar club we'll get to i guess (laughs) yeah yeah we'll get to that um
0: i don't know i like
1: to think i I'm still like actually really, really interested in geopolitics and macroeconomics and stuff like that. That's not the subject of this podcast, but like, I still am very interested in that stuff and find some of the just like ways of thinking lessons that I learned at Geneseo in that department. I still use them from time to time. Weird is that maybe like in my current, my current job and my current life. Like, it's just like, I learned a little bit about game theory and about just like, the different ways politics can shake out realism, interdependence. And like, I find myself just framing the world in those ways still. So didn't use it, but like, I guess kind of did. What, what's any education for, you know?
0: Yeah, no, <laughs> you're, you're, I, 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 I agree. It's hard for me to, it's hard for me to really say that now that I have kids. Cause there's like so many things that I want to say about that whole subject with school and stuff that I just probably keep to
1: myself until they're very old you know? You know. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I was fortunate to like, again, beyond the scope of this podcast, but like I took college seriously, just like wanting to do well and learn in the classes. Cause it was kind of always instilled in me, like go to undergrad, get the piece of paper. But like my parents would always say, like you get out of it, what you put into it. And I think that's true and you can probably relate to that. And it's like in high school, i probably slept through half the day every day and never gave half a shit about anything and it just wasn't the right learning style for me and then i went to college and like really appreciated the self-starting and like how it's kind of like you're on your own do your thing and that made me more interested in like actually wanting to just learn for learning's sake so yeah you know i got the piece of paper and then i never really definitely never wanted to work in politics that was like never on the table for me you fuck with uh better call Saul though or You know, I actually still haven't watched it. Everybody in the world tells me to, but it's on the list
0: still somehow. Yeah, definitely. I I haven't really messed with TV as much with the whole podcast thing now. And I listen to a lot of wrestling podcasts and rap podcasts. So I just don't really, I don't know. Every time I think about turning the TV on, I'm just like, I'd rather listen to some kind of gossip on
1: Vlad TV or some shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, for me, it's sports. and I know you're a sports guy too. Like for me, especially during NBA season, I think you're also a basketball guy, right? Or you used to be.
0: I haven't watched as much just because with having kids, like my son just doesn't really like sports as much. So sometimes at night I'll put something on though. And especially now with, with, uh, you know, the playoffs looming and baseball, we'll be watching a lot of that. And, yeah, yeah. you know, we're allowed to watch football. So that's cool. At least, you know, right, good, good. Yeah. Go Dodgers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, I guess kind of sticking with, like I, like I mentioned that the European tour came eventually, uh,
1: was that your first time going to Europe? Uh, as a, as a tour, for sure. Uh, I went there once with my family when I was like you know younger. My dad was doing work in Germany and went there. I think maybe went to the UK briefly. Again, too, too young to really appreciate it. Uh, so like, yeah, Achilles Europe was really the first time, as Max told it way better than me, just like being that early 20s, whatever kid, just like, I can't remember if I think I had kind of just started drinking and not been straight edge anymore at that point too. So like, yeah, we, we were having fun. Even, even in that state, like telling it that way feels disingenuous because Achilles was never like really a party band. It was like, we just like, maybe get goofy on the van ride and like, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to tell any stories that blow up anyone's spot, but like nothing was really that bad anyway. Um, But definitely that was, my first time even really doing a longer tour because I had never done a full us before we did the full Europe um so that was just that was really awesome and in fact I came to kind of (laughs) hate European touring in the PBC years which I don't think that's a surprise to anybody that knows me either um but the Achilles one I look back fondly on it was like the right amount of time the right stakes it was it was summer it wasn't freezing cold we weren't like worried about making money or anything like that it was all all the right kind of europe stories you hear was was that tour so yeah it's great
0: and i guess like we'll get to some of the, the polar bear club uh experiences for better or worse touring over there like but we're when 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 you did eventually do that a lot with them though like were you reflecting on on the achilles tour uh occasionally or
1: yeah when a little you'd be bit on tour with those bands? we would hit some of the same cities and it would be kind of interesting i i don't think we ever played a single one of the same venues though actually it was just like different different worlds within the same world um so you know like thoughts would come to mind especially like a lot of the a lot of both bands spent time in germany i think just like when you're a punk hardcore band that's where you spend a lot of your time touring that's where that's where they support you Like that's where the venues all have band apartments and like they feed you breakfast in the morning, dinner at night, whatever. It's like you're kind of incentivized to go there because it's where you'll be able to live and where they seem to want you. So like there were definitely when we would be circling through Germany all the time, I would routinely think back to those days fondly for sure. It wasn't even that many years apart. I think PBC went to Europe for the first time in like winter early of early 2009. So it was only like two and a half years later at that point.
0: And I think we'll circle back to Achilles and I'll mention this again at the end of the interview, but if I'm, if I'm missing anything, if there's anything that, you know, I miss along the way, obviously let me know, but kind of jumping into polar bear club a little bit. I feel like we'll, we'll kind of be sticking with, uh, a constant theme of the, of the episode in that, uh, a previous guest, I feel like he kind of told it like it was you and Kevin Mahoney that kind of had the idea to start a band like that.
1: Uh, and that's kind of how that uh, came about a little bit or. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, Kevin was an OG. Um, Bob O'Neill from Another Breath at the time was it like the first practices PBC had were at Cosmic Jams with me and Kevin and Bob. And then Josh Dillon from Achilles sort of joined shortly thereafter, maybe just after like a couple practices or something. And like, I don't know, this wasn't really the question, but could immediately tell that we had like something special and different like that was another one like the two times actually there's three times I can remember being at Cosmic Jam specifically and having to like turn around because I was like geeking smiling and one was when Rory started singing in Achilles another was like the first time Bob and Kevin and I played like the first PBC song we wrote and just like you know credit to Bob O'Neill I don't really know what he's up to at this point but like that dude had a way of just smashing the drums with like a flair in songwriting that like, I don't know that I've heard much since then. Uh, and just like, I had never really played with a drummer like exactly like him at that point. Um, and so like, I just sort of like knew that that had unlocked something for us at that point. And then the third time was the end of Tamaroff actually, when Brian Vanetten started playing drums for us. Like the first time we sat down and he had like learned our songs in advance and we played all the Tamaroff songs with Brian playing drums, I was geeking at that too. Probably a product of the Stand Fast thing as well. But uh, those are like the things that stick out in my head. Is like, wow, I'm in a practice, but I can tell like this is great. You know, um, definitely happened with PBC with Kevin and Bob.
0: Now, uh, sticking with the like theme of you guys kind of knowing you had something with uh, Polar Bear Club, which obviously you kind of proved to be right. Um, in this era... What was what this, like 2004, 2005, maybe even? Yeah, this would have been, like, summer, fall 2005, I think. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, there haven't been too many well-known, like, vocalists in the Rochester area by this point. There's been a few, but, like, did you guys have Jimmy in mind immediately, or were you guys kind of thinking about it? Like, like who's going to fit with, with these
1: songs and, like, kind of help take it to the next level, so to speak? Yeah, so... To continue with the same theme, Jimmy told this story on a recent podcast he did. Not yours, though. So I'm just going to kind of like duplicate because he tells it better. Everybody that's told you these things before, I think they tell it better than me. But uh, (laughs) it was it was kind of like so Tamaroff was winding down and like Jimmy was going to Fredonia and in Jimmy's own words, he was like done. The disaster was ending and Jimmy was like thinking he was kind of done doing bands or at least singing in bands or whatever he was obviously far from right about that at the time. But like he went to Fredonia and was like doing theater stuff and just kind of like thought that chapter of his life was over. Um, and we were hanging out. I remember we were hanging out at Harris Hill, Harris Wayland park and Penfield, you know, that, that spot um, we were like playing Frisbee and, I was like trying to I was trying to get him excited about this because I knew I wanted Jimmy to sing in it, but I thought he was done with it and I didn't want to force the issue. We were friends and we had just gotten done doing these other bands and whatever else. And so I like, you know, gave I can't even remember I don't think I played it for him on the spot. I just gave him the CD of like the rough tracks of the demo that we had been recording at our friend Dan goseks actually it was in Josh Dylan's parents' house with Dan Goseck recording it. It was like in a bedroom we were recording this thing. Um, and I gave him the CD. And he listened to it and he was like, all right, you win. Like <laughs> He like brought it home. And by the next time we hung out, like a week later, he had written three songs worth of lyrics and placement. And he had the whole thing ready. He was like, let me get in the studio. I'm ready to just track it. So like, we never had a practice with him. We had recorded the three songs instrumental that were just Kevin, Bob, Josh, and myself. And then Jimmy heard those and was like, all right, I'm back in. <laughs> and he just knew it kind of fit and he couldn't say no to it. And it was also like, I don't think I was shy with him about the fact that like PBC was just supportive, sort of supposed to be a more straightforward, energetic version of Tamaroff. Like I wanted to take the spirit of what we were doing with that and maybe make it a little bit less noodly, a little bit less like angular or whatever, and like rock a little bit with it. But take some of the same sensibilities so like I you know I don't think it was a surprise that like he worked as well with that I just think he always our brains worked well together the way he said it on this other podcast was that like I was always technical and analytical and he was instinctual and like the late era Tamaroff and the early polar bear club that was I think very much the reason for all that like it just just came together naturally like I yeah I didn't know anybody else I was pretty much like well maybe we'll do this band Maybe we won't find a singer. I don't know. I don't know what we'll do. So I was pretty glad that he uh, said yes and recorded. I didn't even hear anything until I think I wasn't there when he recorded the vocals. And I just heard the finished product and was like, fucking wow. All right, cool.
0: <laughs> now, did things I guess a couple of questions kind of related, like, uh, did you guys did, did the lineup kind of take a little while to solidify? Because I know there's like different you know, members. And then like, did things kind of pick up as quickly as you kind of assumed they would?
1: By that point, too, uh yeah, like in hindsight, really the only constant of PBC was changing members the whole time. It felt like we hit these strides where we had the same lineups for a long time and and we did, but like, man, it was there was a lot of change um so like we did a few weekends, which like Max mentioned when it was still the pretty much the original lineup. It was like me, Kevin, Bob, I think Josh bowed out maybe the earliest because he just. In his words, he was like, he was a high school kid still. He was like partying with his friends and like it was his senior year and he was trying to like live his senior year of high school. And I think in his words, he didn't have time in his life for both Achilles and PBC and he chose Achilles. He just liked doing Achilles more. Um, So he quit and he later like made fun of himself for this, even though I, you know, I think everything worked out great. Actually, to fast forward a little bit, and I will come back to this. But like Josh ended up filling in for PBC like years later, once we were already full time in uh 2010 he filled in on he filled in on bass for like bamboozle and a couple of other like festival things we did and that was really cool to have him back and you know it was always like i don't think anybody ever left pbc and it was like a super bad thing or really any of the bands i was in honestly i that's that's something i'm kind of proud of it's like for all the member changes that happened very few of them were even temporarily bad um but uh yeah so like First, Josh bowed out and we replaced him with Greg Odom from Breaking Project. And he did. He was in What Stops Us, too, I think. Um, and so we did the weekends like Greg was on The Redder, the Better. And that was still with Bob and Kevin. Um, and we did like some weekends out to Massachusetts and stuff with Max roading for us and all that. Uh, and then Bob actually we did. OK, we did a summer tour that was like two or three weeks. That following summer, so 06, the same year that Achilles went to Europe, PBC did a U.S. thing like right before it. It's kind of all coming back to me now. Um, And the band PBC did a lot of that with with was this band from Illinois on No Idea called Scout's Honor. And after – and they were really cool dudes. We got on great with them. Shows weren't really very good, but, like, we didn't expect that at that point. We were just stoked to be doing it. And after that summer, Scout's Honor asked Bob – to tour with them like borderline full time. And Bob was at a place in his life where like, that's really what he wanted. And we were still a little ways away from PBC that even being an idea for us, we were like, yeah, no, we're in college. And like, this is fun, you know? And so Bob quit PBC to go do scouts honor and just like take a crack at being on tour all the time. And he was going to have to miss like a bunch of shows and recording or whatever. So we were like, all right, you know, whatever. Um, We replaced him with Emmett from marathon, which At the time, that was another like sort of geek out moment was like I was a huge marathon fan. I thought the marathon full length was definitely like the best thing to ever come out of Rochester. In my eyes, as of that time, maybe still is. Um, And so we were just geeked to have Emmett in the band and he kind of hit the ground running, too. Um, Actually, I have the wrong order here. I'm sorry. Nate joined first. So first, Kevin bowed out. And I think it was same sort of deal. Like Roses are Red was still touring a lot and PBC was a side project and he kind of had to pick and Roses are Red was more busy. So PBC sort of fell by the wayside for people because it wasn't busy enough early on. And so like Kevin and Bob left because it wasn't doing enough. Josh left because it was doing too much. Um, And all of it was totally amicable. We just kind of like swapped each person out as it went and Nate joined or first Greg joined, then Nate joined, then Emmett joined. And that's when we sort of hit a stride for a while. Um, I can't actually remember. So Greg recorded the first PBC full length on bass with us. And then somewhere after that, he left. And I honestly don't even remember why, because I love Greg Odom so much. I would never want him to be out of a band ever. I think he was moving away. Maybe this was when he was like finishing college and starting work or something. So that's when Goose from Syracuse replaced him and he was in it for a very long time. So that lineup of PBC the sort of Jimmy, me, Nate, Goose, Emmett, that one lasted for, like, the bulk of when we were full-time. That one went on for a while.
0: Well, how long of a period, I guess, then, was it for where you guys went from, like, doing, like, weekends and whatnot to, like, doing, like, more, like, bigger tours and whatnot?
1: Yeah, so, like, uh I said, we started late 05, which means we recorded Redder the Better. would have been, like, winter, like, maybe January, February 2006, and from that point, like we started to get a little bit of like the weird MySpace, like people were carrying, and we were like, oh, all right, we could go do weekends. So like we were doing that throughout 06, 07. And that 07 is when I went to law school from like fall of 07 to spring of 08. And then sort of like spring of 08 was when like I was winding down that school year and we started to get like bigger offers to do stuff like the one that sticks out was like Emmett. Emmett went to see Gaslight Anthem in Boston when they were touring on their first record, Sink or Swim. And he hit it off with some of them. And I honestly don't even remember how it came to pass. Maybe they just knew who we were. I don't know. But they offered us to do, like, some CD release shows they were doing for the 59 sound. What would have been that at the time? Um, and that was, like, August 08. And then straight from that into like a two and a half week U.S. tour, like their sort of release tour on 59 Sound. And like when we got those offers, that was sort of like big enough of a deal to be like, okay. And I think I'm like glossing over a lot. It's like we were also getting like labels were starting to reach out, booking agents, like stuff that. I I remember being the one to field some of those phone calls at the time and just like having no fucking idea what I was doing. Like, I don't know what it would be to like sign to something. I didn't even know what questions to ask or like how to recognize if someone's trying to screw you or not, which no one at that point was, but like, it was all just totally foreign, but we knew something was happening. And I think at that point, like I had started grad school, but everybody else was either done with college or at a point in their lives where it was like you just want to do this and so yeah we like early 08 things to things started to pick up steam enough to be like we could do this all the time and see where it goes for a little while and then fall of 08 was when we just kind of ripped the band-aid and went for it and straight through till 2013 didn't stop
0: Now I kind of, we've talked about timelines on this a lot and I've referenced earlier on the podcast, like when you were in your early bands in the early two thousands, how there was a few bands that had kind of started doing the full, more full time thing, but it wasn't even on the level that you're kind of talking about even then. So like, did you guys talk to any like contemporary bands, like before you started doing this, like to kind of get a feel (laughs) for what you were diving into, or did you guys just kind of say fuck
1: it and just kind of see how it all went? Maybe some of the other guys did, but I didn't. I just, all I can think about is like, I was very naive at the time. And like, it's not such a bad thing because I think it it made a lot of the early stuff we did even more special because I just went into it just wide-eyed. Like, I didn't know any other like bands that had done that at the time. Like all the other bands from Rochester that I had looked up to had kind of like, at that point they were gone for the most part. You know, it was like, like you're stand fast and break at dawn and building on fire. They gave way to marathon and well, in the disaster and Hadea and all that. And none of those ever like really tried to like really go for it in that way. And so it was, it was different than any of the stuff I had looked up to before. And I, I just frankly, no idea what to expect. I was always like the one, I don't know if I should even say this, but it's like in all these situations, I think I, my best contributions to these groups were like staying in my lane and being more of like, someone who was doing as opposed to saying (laughs) like, like I was, I was writing the riffs. I was like even, even more logistical stuff, like booking the tours and just wanting to like push us into activity. But I was never good at like, at like playing it cool. (laughs) Like I remember when we were getting ready to like go full time it was like a really, it was a much bigger thing for me than it was for anybody else. Cause I was leaving law school and, and like my family thought I was kind of fucking insane. And like the people in my school thought I was nuts because I was going to Boston university, which is a good law school. Like I, I do not regret leaving for one second. It would not have been the lifestyle for me. And I did an internship that summer before we started touring that like really taught me that I was making the right decision. Cause I just, wasn't ready for it. That wasn't the life I wanted to live. But like, it felt like I was like leaving another opportunity on the table. Whereas I think these other guys were kind of like, yeah, you know, like, let's just do it. Let's go on tour again. Nate and Emmett had done this with Marathon once already. So that if anything, they were sort of cynical about it. They're like, well, you know, screw it. Let's try it again. <laughs> and in hindsight, they were the more level headed ones about it. And I remember when we were getting ready, I like, we were having an email chain planning stuff and I like wrote some real sappy long thing. Like I've wanted to do this. Like I've always wanted to try this. Like I'm just so excited to do this with you guys. And like, it's not like everybody was cool about it, but the, the overarching message back was like, play it cool, man. We got, we're going to have to do this a lot. So like, act like you've been there a little bit, you know, and I was always kind of bad at that. So. (laughs) So.
0: Now, when you decide to become like a full-time band, like I know you referenced like booking agents and obviously we'll get to bridge nine. Like, do you guys kind of sit down and like, are you already working with a booking agent? Are you already talking to bridge nine? Like, or is it kind of like, this is what we have to do to get to this point. Like, this is our plan to get there type thing, you know?
1: Um, So I think, you know, props and shout outs where they're due at this time, we were with red leader, Matt. Um, who had done the marathon stuff too and like Nakatomi Plaza and a bunch of other cool shit um, and so we kind of like had a label and I, I don't think I don't even want to put him in quotes because he was really running a label it was just a smaller label um, and I think once we once we started touring more we kind of realized we should do something besides Red Leader or at least in our minds we we felt like we should level up and that's when Bridge Nine came into play As I recall, we started out without a booking agent at all. Like, I don't remember when we started working with our booking agent, Mike Marquis, but he was really great. And we were with him the whole time. Like once we started working with him, he was at this uh, called the Paradigm Agency. I don't think that's what he's with anymore, but he took really good care of us and was like, he kept finding us support tours, but he's also sort of go to bat for us and make sure like, you know, it was never about the money with this band (laughs) as much as it was for other bands we came across or really not even I think we were really lucky like most of the bands we associated with it just wasn't primarily about that but he made sure we were at least like gonna make ends meet kind of deal and like so we were very lucky and grateful to have a dude like Mike Marquis because I think he primarily worked with bigger like pop sort of acts like I think him and he worked with that guy Matt Galley they booked like Paramore and All American Rejects and like a lot of bigger stuff where we were just kind of like a token, like they just liked our band and they just wanted to help kind of thing. So like, that was really helpful for us. But early on, we didn't really fucking know what to do with that. We didn't sign with Bridge9 until a little bit later. Like, I can't remember what tour we were on, but we met with Carl, who was label manager at the time at like a Tennessee show. Um, And we were talking to a few labels at the time and yeah, I don't want to skip too far ahead, but it all sort of happened piecemeal. Like the first thing was, all I, the first thing was we bought a short bus, which broke down on the very first weekend we did. And like we replaced the transmission for the short bus and then it died again. And we were like, all right, we got to get a real van and trailer like a fucking real band. And uh, shout out to Tony and Bernier from Angry Penguin, now Tiny Fish Printing in Rochester, who let us like borrow their van for just a shocking amount of time. Like we used their van without owning it for, I feel like a straight up a full year of full-time touring. And it was like this brand new, beautiful van that worked great. And we eventually bought it from them, but it was like, I don't know why they even helped us like that. Those guys were, we owe them massive props for that. <laughs> um,
0: now you kind of had referenced, uh, well, I maybe you didn't, but it just kind of has me thinking about it. Cause I feel like I don't talk to a, a lot of people that, like, kind of went on a lot of these bigger tours and worldwide tours, so was there ever any, like, I don't know how to describe these people, but, like, what you would picture, like, the Penny Arcade promoter to look like, like, (laughs) sweatpants, long, greasy hair, like, just, like, real sketchy people, basically. Like, did you ever interact with any, like, real, like, weird, like, you know what I mean, on any of these tours? Like, for sure. Yeah.
1: (laughs) But I I wish I had like a specific story of one that I could summon to mind right now. Cause yeah, like probably, but I I don't know. Like, I think maybe more so like PBC kind of did two types of things. We would do support tours where we would just like, you know, either be on like a big package or opening for a bigger band or both kind of thing. And like in most of those cases, the shows were big enough and the venues and the promoters were big enough and established enough that they were somewhat professional about what they did. More of our incidents like that were probably when we were doing headline tours, like, and we were still playing smaller clubs. Like in a lot of places we play like bug jar type spots, you know? Um, so like some of like cities where we didn't do as well, like I remember playing some random spots in like Omaha and Toledo and like fucking shit. I probably places that I've blacked out of memory that it's like, you know, there's no way a band like us would do well there, but we played there. And like, I bet you some of those promoters were pretty sketchy. I honestly, I like deferred to, as soon as we had other people out with us, like Trevor Backer was always out with us. Bobby Griffiths was always out doing merch. Like as soon as Trevor was out with us all the time and wanted to become like tour manager officially, I always deferred to him. I was like, I don't want to deal with this stuff. So you deal with it. I just want to play guitar, honestly. So, <laughs> so
0: like when you like decided to quit law school and everything, like you guys, like, I, I guess what I'm curious about too is like, and, and maybe things are a little different now. Cause we're talking like 10, 15 years back, but like how, like how far in advance would bands plan out like their whole year or whatever? Like, would you just plan out like one tour at a time or like see what was available? to you like or would you be planning out like months at a time you know what i mean
1: no totally most of the time we'd be planned out like maybe six to nine months in advance you know um so we'd at any given time we'd know the next like two or three tours we were doing um and if we and we would take breaks sometimes it'd be like a little scary because it was like all right we we gotta get jobs like because it was never like good enough where we didn't have to worry about stuff like that so like we kind of had to make sure we were staying out And if we weren't out, it was like, all right, well, then we better be taking this month to write and then taking the next month to record. And if we're going to do that, like, all right, is the label going to give us a budget? And can we use that budget to like live on at the same time? And then as soon as, I mean, I remember like when we went to, you mentioned salad days before, like we went to salad days for our third record. Um, And when we were doing that, that was like, we spent six weeks, we did two weeks of pre-pro and then four weeks tracking it. And from the studio in Baltimore, we left for like a full us and then some, because we were like, man, by the time we get done recording, we're going to be broke. And we just got to like get another tour cracking right away. So like, I remember scheduling being like that all, it was like a constant conversation of that's probably why we weren't ever super savvy about other things, or maybe we wouldn't take enough time at home to write. And like, as, as time went on, it was so much touring and not enough creative stuff for me personally, because you kind of just, you had to, you know, like you, if you weren't booked out six to nine months, it meant you weren't getting the offers, which was a problem. And that didn't really, we were lucky even at the end. I don't think that was ever really the case. Like we sort of sensed that things were slowing down, but if we wanted to keep going, like there were still tours, we could have kept going. So that was, we were always pretty lucky about that, but yeah, always six, nine months out, man, just looking ahead, never looking at what you're doing. Wish I would have been more in the moment. That's probably very
0: common. When you first started playing when you first started playing like those huge festivals in like other countries and shit, like what what like what kind of vibe would it be like stepping out on a stage like that for the first time? You know what I mean?
1: Uh awesome, honestly. <laughs> Usually just <laughs> awesome. Um it it came in definitely all shapes and sizes. Like it was not that every time we played a huge festival, people cared because a lot of the time they didn't. Like sometimes they did, and that was even more cool. But like, I remember, you know, some of the ones that stand out to me were like playing Reading and Leeds in the UK. That's like a big name rock festival. But and you think of it like whoever's seen like videos of like the Foo Fighters or whatever playing like those massive, massive open fields. Like we were never actually doing that for the most part. Like there was a side stage. It was called the lockup stage where like a lot of bands like us. I remember one year it was like us and Trash Talk and Cancer Bats and a Wilhelm Scream and Think comeback kid and like just all kinds of bands that at the intersection of punk and hardcore. That I think Europe and the UK did a better job of like blending that stuff in with bigger rock at the same events. And so we got to be on a side stage at these same things that were massive. But and it was still really big. Like it was definitely bigger than a club show we would play. Like I don't know for most of the time, like a, a PBC's own club show would never be more than like three to five hundred people for the most part. Um, and these festivals would be maybe five thousand. And so that's not a hundred thousand. It's not like what you see on, you know, the DVDs of the Foo Fighters or whatever. But like, it was very cool and intimidating at first. But like, honestly, I always felt like once you play one of those or play like a bigger support tour, like once you do it once or twice, you kind of just doing it. You're just playing. It's like you get in such a groove with playing the songs. It's all muscle memory, and it's not really like nervous so much most of the time. You're just kind of doing it, and like almost trying to make sure you appreciate it a little bit that was the hard part because <laughs> it all this happens fast
0: and now you and i were talking right before we started doing the interview or maybe even in the beginning of the interview but about you guys like about polar bear club torn with like hardcore bands and stuff like that and i feel like it's more common now like there's that band Coyo that is torn with like everybody like like hard and metalcore and stuff like that and but like back then, it didn't seem quite as. I mean, I guess you could date it back to like the email bands and stuff too. But like, what I'm getting at is like, like was was the reception always pretty good when you guys would were tour with like a, like a half heart or a trapped under ice or,
1: like, man, it it was interesting. Like I, I just that specific tour, yes, like it was really great. And I think part of it was like it was at a point in what PBC was doing where we were still thought of as like that and much to like some of our chagrin, I think like as time went on, we sort of were thought of as less that I think from doing bigger tours and stuff. And it's like, I don't know, like, I don't know if anyone would have ever framed it as like selling out what we did, but like we tried to do bigger tours and like, we would tour with eventually bands that like none of us really listened to, you know? And so my memories of shows where it went over like a fart in church, were not so much the hardcore shows. Like, cause we, those were earlier on when like, we still, we didn't, it was more like one of those Rochester shows like Jimmy mentioned where it was like, you'd see Elliot and the weaker thans and then like stand fast. And every time I die and whatever, and it was kind of like acceptable in its own way. And like, I think we tapped into some similar vibe with that early on in like 08, And then as time went on, we started doing different stuff where we got really comfortable with sometimes things just not going well. And We always tried to like, you know, I I think we were always really professional about it. And we knew what we were getting into. Like the one that stands out in my head is uh, in 2010, we did the Alternative Press Tour, which was uh, co-headlined by Bring Me the Horizon and August Burns Red. And it was us and the Swellers and This Is Hell. Really, really weird lineup. Um, So like This Is Hell, as you can imagine, like didn't go over well with these crowds either. But at least they were kind of heavy, you know, and we were not. We weren't heavy enough for these crowds, but we weren't like accessible enough for the pop stuff they were into. So like a lot of nights, it was like looking out and just blank stares and you could just tell they're not getting it. And you would kind of get off stage and be like, look, you know, if like 10 kids in there understood what's going on tonight, that's like 10 more kids that maybe we'll come back out next time we're in town. And I remember doing some tours where that was what we told ourselves. And we're like, yeah, we're building it. You know, it's good. And I think in hindsight, we may have been like, thinking about it a little too much like a business when doing those tours. Honestly, the AP tour, not so much. Like it didn't go over well crowd reaction wise, but the other side of the coin with a lot of those tours where people didn't like us as much was we got along great with really all the bands we toured with. Like I hit it off. Awesome. With the bring me the horizon guys at the time. Uh, August burns red too. Like, I just remember like good hangs on that tour actually. Uh, And so it's like, it looks one way from the outside and I can see why like stylistically it didn't make sense. And we did a number of tours like that. Um, one that's sort of, I'm not sure how it looked from the outside, but right before that 09, we did the gig life tour, which is with set your goals and four years strong and another band called fireworks that we ended up doing a lot with. And I think at the time we didn't think PBC was like set your goals or four years strong at all, for whatever reason, like we thought of ourselves as different and like, I think, maybe just every band wants to think they're doing something unique. So you're like, no, we're doing what we're doing. But we, we sort of like resisted taking tours with those bands at first. Um, And then once we did it, we were like, this is dumb. These crowds actually really like us. Like those kids were like, oh, they didn't know who we were yet, but it was a good fit. And it was definitely the same types of dudes. And I think we learned to maybe be less judgmental from doing stuff like that because, you think you just think of like, what is this band? What do they look like? What do they sound like? You don't know anything else about them. And when you get to know a lot of them as people, like a lot of them are cool people, frankly. So,
0: Well, it's weird because like I feel like all this, like no matter what you call it, it's all just kind of spawned off of hardcore no matter what. You know what I mean? So and it's all hardcore kids at the end of the day, you know. So I think that all kind of really, really ties kid. it together.
1: Yeah. Even when you're touring with bands yeah. that don't sound like it at all. You could usually find common ground talking about, like, an old band that you both liked. And that's something I didn't realize.
0: Um, with with Polar Bear Club, though, I know you mentioned, like, Reading and Leeds and shit like that, and I already asked you kind of about, like, festivals, but was there ever, like, like a holy shit moment for you with the band or anything like that? Like, a, be it, like, a tour or, like, a show or, like, something where you're, like, man, like, 16-year-old me would have been, like like, going crazy about
1: this right now, you know? Or was it, like, the whole experience, pretty much? It was pretty much the whole experience, man. (laughs) Uh, I can can definitely think about certain moments where, like, what you're describing, where it was just like, okay, I'm fully present. Like, this is everything I've ever wanted. Like, the Gainesville Fest, the fest, I don't know how familiar you are with that, like, still goes on every year. We played that, I think, four times? And every single one of them was one of, maybe four of the top five shows I've ever played in my entire life. Like, it's impossible to even describe the feeling. Like, the first time we played it was, like, unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. Because you're, like, you're in Gainesville, Florida, which, like, on a normal tour, it's, like, I don't know if we play there. We had actually played there on a normal tour once, and it was kind of whatever. It was, like, over the summer. Like, University of Florida was out at the time, so there weren't students there. So we didn't really, we didn't know. But for that fest, it was, like, everyone especially at that time, it was like everyone who likes exactly the right kind of music to be into what we were doing was there that weekend. And yeah, that when we were lucky enough to have the total right stylistic fit, it was very obvious. Like some of it was just tours. We did like, I remember that um, I guess it would have been early 2010. We did a European tour with shook ones and title fight and every show was fucking amazing. Like it was right as title fight was starting to like come into their own. And there was a lot of shows where like, they kind of got better reactions than us, but it wasn't, it wasn't a thing. It was just like, we loved their band and like all three of the bands loved each other. And I think stylistically that was a really great fit. Um, And like the last show was in London and it was the first time we'd ever sold out like a 500 cap room and anywhere and like that was a special thing and maybe one of the only times we ever did in hindsight because it's not like we were ever really like selling out full tours or anything like that but yeah there's a few moments that stand out a lot of them at the fest um big festivals like you mentioned in a different way oh grows rock you know that one in uh it's a festival in belgium that's like also a really great combo of all kinds of punk and hardcore every year i don't actually know if it's going on anymore maybe they might bring it back but um yeah, we played Grosrock towards the end in 2013. And that was another one where it's like, I'll never forget this. This is one of the best crowds I've ever played for. So definitely had enough of those to to remember as I get old and gray.
0: Yeah, I always see videos of all those European fests. And it's just crazy to see like the crazy crowds and shit. And I always envy people like yourself who've been able to play some of those shows. Uh, you mentioned that that's four of the top five, though. What's, what's the other one of on, if you had a... I don't usually ask people those lists anymore, but you kind of mentioned it. So now you got me putting you on the spot.
1: (laughs) The fest times four, plus I got to name one other one. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I, I, it might be one of the two I just mentioned, honestly, either that last London show of the title fight tour, um, which was also special for me because like my now wife Libby had flown over and was like in the room for that. And I think that was like the first time she had ever seen us overseas, like, getting a good crowd and like seeing what it was that we were really doing full-time. So that was like just personally special. And then Grows Rock. Yeah, I don't know. There's so many more I'm blanking on. I'm doing that thing where I I forget all the things I would want to say and get scatterbrained, but Grows Rock was a good one because I think honestly at that point we were maybe sort of fighting the fact that it was starting to wind down a little bit. Like we had just gone through a bunch more member changes. So like, That was with Steve Port on drums, who had done Another Breath as well. (laughs) He followed Bob in Another Breath and then followed Emmett in Polar Bear Club. Um, And then our friend Ty from Tamaroff and the Avram was playing bass at this point. Um, Pat Benson from Forfeit, a bunch of other stuff, was playing guitar. He had replaced Nate. And Pat actually is now a guitar tech for Nine Inch Nails, which is like the coolest job in the world. He kills it. He's like, levels beyond my understanding at anything guitar gear wise. I try to follow along and I don't even understand what he's talking about anymore. He's so smart about all of it. But like at this point, Gros Rock, we had like just kind of freshly gotten a really new lineup and we were a little bit self-conscious about like, are people going to like treat this like it's the same thing? Because we still felt like we were playing really well live, maybe even better. Like we were really tight, the really positive vibes in the van and stuff, but we were a little bit worried about how everything was getting perceived at that point. And that was a moment where it felt like, damn, we're going to, we're going to be able to keep doing this. And it ended shortly thereafter, but like there were a few really positive memories in that last era. And that was definitely one. of them.
0: I feel like we've just kind of glossed over the whole bridge nine thing too. Like if somebody would have told me in the year 2000, that a band from Rochester was signing to to bridge nine, I would have been like, you know, like going nuts, you know? So like, how was it working with that label? Like were there ever any other labels you guys considered? Like, Did you like before the band kind of disbanded or whatever? Like, did you guys think about reaching out to any other labels or anything like that? You know, I know it's a lot of questions at once, but yeah, man,
1: you're, you're inducing me being scatterbrained. It's your fault now. Uh, (laughs) No. So we, when we started working with them, we were talking to a few, like we had talked to like equal vision. I knew a couple of the guys there that were like, they were supportive of Achilles too, actually Um, never did anything on equal vision, but I obviously held that label in super high esteem because of. A number of things, Bane saves the day, whatever else, that era. Um, so we were talking to Equal Vision. We were talking to Revelation a little bit. Um, we were like gunning for Epitaph, but they weren't interested in us yet at this point. They gave us a hard no. So like we were we were like fishing around a few things. This is when we knew like, all right, we're touring hard. We want to level up from Red Leader. So like we got to do something. And that was when we met with uh, Carl Hensel, who is now, he, now I work at Kings Road Merch with him. I don't know if Max mentioned that that's a whole connection that I feel like obliged to mention. So uh, Max works remote for Kings road, despite living in Rochester and both of us work with Carl now who signed PVC to bridge nine. So like, I still keep in touch with him. I talk to Carl every day. Um, we're still great friends, maybe a lot better friends now, um, <laughs> but we sort of signed because of him and, and his vision for the label. Like it's not that we weren't all super stoked on everything they had done. Like, Loved Carry On, loved Verse, loved a lot of stuff at the time, Half Heart. Um, but we didn't really know why they were interested in us. And and then he sort of signed, um, I think Jimmy might have talked about this too, so sorry if I'm repeating anything. But he signed like Strike Anywhere, Us, Crime and Stereo, and Lemuria, like all in the same year. And it was like his sort of new wave of like, this is what I want Bridge Nine to be for this next phase. Um, and when he sold it to us that way, we were like, Oh yeah, this makes sense. And then we did fall 2009. We did like the bridge nine tour, which was strike us crime and stereo and ruiner full U S. Um, and so there was a sort of thing at the time, like we obviously, we were all big fans of strike anywhere dating back to when they would play Rochester in the Stanfast era. So like, that was really cool to us to sort of be a part of that. Um, and we just sort of could see the vision of like maybe bridge nine is, pivoting a little bit to be more like us and that can keep us connected to what we still want to be and i do think it worked out that way the funny thing is so carl signed us in like early 2009 or whatever and in the spring of that year we went to seattle and recorded uh what became chasing hamburg with matt bayless who did like minus the bear and botch and all that stuff these arms are snakes man he's done so much more than that that i'm forgetting right now but That was another really cool like producer experience. And we recorded with him for like a month in Seattle. And then over the summer, while we're getting ready for it to come out, Carl took the job to come start King's road, working for uh, Brett Gurwitz at Epitaph. And he wrote us this really long, heartfelt, sweet email that was like, I'm sorry guys for leaving you in the lurch kind of thing. And like, he left and took this job and moved out to LA like a month before our first record came out for him. (laughs) So like we never actually got to work with Carl once we were on the label, um, so things sort of changed but it was still a cool place to be like we did that one and then the next record and then an acoustic record were are all bridge nine and then at the end we actually were on rise records for a little while we signed with matt gordner of nobody cares roses are red fame and that was kind of a fun full circle thing as well we went to portland and met up with them on tour once and our last record was on rise and that was the only thing we did with them before we were done but uh yeah we did and at that time we were kind of talking to like epitaph as well but yeah bridge nine and then rise and like i don't know i i know there's a lot of like bands like us that probably have horror stories about labels mistreating them and such but maybe we were just lucky maybe we chose well maybe some combination of the above but i always thought that the labels we were on treated us really well like the only things we ever really asked for were like recording budgets to be able to go to these cool ass producers and we never got a no to any of that it was always like yeah how much is it gonna cost all right we'll do it so like I have zero complaints about any of the label situations we were on. I don't think, I don't think any of the things that went down that could even be framed as negative had anything to do with the label in our case. Kind of proud to say that.
0: Shout out to Matt Gordner. I feel like when you go on tour, especially if you guys are like out and about together, like random people would probably realize like you're a band, like all the, like the hundreds of shows you were playing per year when you'd be, like, walking around in random cities, like, would you get a lot of weird looks from people, like, wondering what band you were, like, who you guys were, anything like that, you know what I mean? Yeah,
1: definitely, like, rest stops sometimes, because you always, you go in there and you're looking your absolute shittiest, you know? You're, like, mesh shorts, like, haven't showered in three days, just, like, got McDonald's stains on your shirt, whatever. It's, like, you get, nobody ever would ask, like, well, actually, I probably gloss over it in my head, but it's, like, people probably did ask, but most of the time, they probably just shot us a side eye and knew we were a band. Um, yeah, actually one funny story from before full-time, uh, when we were doing like the weekends era with Bob and Kevin and everybody, um, we were down in New York city for one. And we had like, I think we played CMJ the night before with like no trigger. And we were staying at a buddy's house in Brooklyn. We woke up the next morning, like super hungover, just like stumbling out to the van, squinting, whatever, walk of shame. And we get out to the trailer and we're like loading our sleeping bags back in. And this other guy walks up to us who looks even shittier than we do. He's like wearing a fedora and sunglasses and he's got a hickey on his neck and he's carrying like a book about jazz and he's wearing a Miles Davis shirt. This guy walks up to us and he just goes, you guys a band? We're like, yeah, yeah. You know, just, just playing, playing here last night or whatever. He's like, cool, cool, cool. What's your band called? Yada, yada. Tell him the band name. He's like, yeah, I used to, I used to be in a band. It's called saves the day miss the road take it easy guys and it like we looked him up afterwards and it was the old bass player of saves the day who just lived in brooklyn at that time we thought he was just like a crazy vagrant saying things but he wasn't and that guy's actually an incredible bass player <laughs> so that was kind of funny that was like he didn't know who we were but we kind of knew who he was that's interesting that you like a,
0: a band that was like influential on you guys oh, or whatever you would have that story with you know yeah. <laughs> um the party aspect, I'm not going to tell the details, but it reminds me of a time when uh, Rory was in town playing with Soul Control and Outbreak. And I don't remember exactly what we were all doing, but you, me, I think Josh Dillon were off to the side somewhere and I said something to the effect of, I could get you guys kicked off Fridge 9 for this or some shit like that. Uh, it was more me that was doing the hijinks that night too. But, you know, oh, yeah, I'm told, fun she was totally times your yeah yeah, all,
1: all me, as always. Bad influence. No. Um, I think Bridge and I knew what they were getting with us. They knew we were in a straight-edge band. It's fine. That was kind of our thing, you know? Yeah, it was – I mean,
0: obviously, I was fucking with you, too, <laughs> yeah. and I was definitely under influences that night anyways. So um, now were you – like, how often would you, like, do the, the Achilles thing during all this time, too? Like, just every so often or – you know what I mean? Uh, yeah,
1: not as much. I kind of remember, like, so Hospice came out whenever that was oh like early oh seven maybe um and then we did like a couple things after that and then that was pretty much it um and i think like we would do a rochester show or like a a weekend's worth of shows or something like when pbc would be home long enough for me to do it like i think we did one in 09 then we definitely did something in like 2011 2012 and then not again until 16 and then not again until 19 so like We're on like the three to four year schedule, which uh, I guess I'll like make a faux announcement. We're talking about firing it back up in 2023. So like we figure we get a little bit of a a grace period for the pandemic. Like normally we would try to do it every three years, but we get an extra year because of everything. So last time we played together was November 2019. So we're going to try and do something in, in Rochester and thereabouts next year.
0: That'll definitely be something to, to talk to you guys more about next year, I guess, for sure. Yeah, we'll talk to you. Um, and obviously, you know, you've mentioned kind of still doing Achilles, you know, every so often. Have you, like, I, I guess we'll get to that now. Like, you, you're based out of, you've mentioned a few times, Long Beach it is uh, in the Los Angeles area. Yep. Um, yep. Since Polar Bear Club uh, disbanded and, and Achilles – kind of started playing every year every few years like have you done anything else with music or
1: anything or <sighs> not really man um i've been out here since 2013 and there was like i tried to get a thing going for a brief stretch with like not, the specifics specific, the specifics aren't really important but like <clears throat> there's obviously it's la there's a lot of musicians here there's a lot of like-minded musicians here Problem is, if they're living out here and musicians, they're probably still doing other serious things. And so, like, I had started a band that I had, like, some aspirations of playing shows and doing recordings for a while with some dudes that are in, like, very full-time active bands still. And it just sort of never – like, we had, like, a handful of practices, and everybody was into it. You know, I thought it was really cool what we were doing, but – dudes had to go on tour for like six months at a time. Like the one guy would go and then he'd get back and the other guy would go and it would just, it kind of never, and then the pandemic happened. And, uh, so I've never really gotten anything going in LA. The most I do out here is, uh, when it comes time to prep for an Achilles show, I like borrow my buddy's practice space and relearn how to play the drums. So
0: (laughs) I, I got to imagine too, like going from somewhere like Rochester to, to there, to California and having to, drive like three hours uh, to practice seven miles away. is
1: probably a real pain in the ass, right? Or Honestly, that's like the main reason it just never took off. Is like, you know, I'm here in Long Beach. Um, the drummer of this group is a good friend of mine. This guy, Daniel, who used to play in the band Transit that PBC used to tour with a lot. He's from Boston area, but he lives out here now. He's a, one of my best friends. We still hang out all the time, but he's in Orange, which is like half hour away. And then the other two guys... Well, one other guy was in orange and then the other guy was up in LA, which is like an hour for me and over an hour from him. And and it like was a big triangle and we'd have to find a practice space that we could like rent out. Every time you rent it out, you got to load all your gear in, load it back out when you're done, pay by the hour. It was just kind of like, man, do I really want to do it this bad? If I had something easier, like if I knew people in Long Beach or whatever, you know, it's definitely actually I talk about this somewhat frequently in life that like it's highlighted to me how dependent I was on other people in the room to keep doing bands I like really thrive off that geek out that I was mentioning earlier like I need I need to know that I'm writing not for like people in a crowd or some shit but like I need to know that I'm writing for other people that I'm going to play the music with and that they're going to get excited and like actually to Rob's credit he's like the best person in my life about all that and he's like so enthusiastic and so consistent with his output that I can't keep up from afar. It's like, it was hard for me to stay motivated to do like send garage band files back and forth with him. I'm just like, man, it's not the same. Like I just, it's really taught me that I'm the guy that like really wants to be in the room, having band practice. Like uh, I was back in Rochester last summer. And some of my old friends, Jimmy and John Garwood from coming down and Max coming down These guys were having a band practice and our other friend, Nick, couldn't show up that night because his kid had a thing. And so I filled in on bass with them for one night. And I was like, this is the most fun I've had with music in probably five years, just because it was in a room playing some songs with some people. And so, you know, life is long and I would love to still get something like that going out here. But it is tough to your point. It's like an hour to get anywhere. (laughs)
0: I've only been out to Los Angeles uh, once in 2006. Uh, shout out to Jeremy Burke, who I'm sure you've probably seen oh, yeah. uh, numerous times living out there. Not enough, um, honestly, not enough. He's busy Never too. can see him enough. Yeah. yeah. No, you never can see that guy enough. Uh, I saw him, actually it was probably about a year ago. Now, time flies by when you're getting older. You you mentioned that, uh, that earlier in the episode, and I've referenced that on here quite a bit in the beginning, especially as – you mentioned a lot of stuff happening in the span of six months in like the early two thousands, that time when you're young, uh, goes by so much faster. Like, like, you know what I mean? Like a month seems like so like such a long period of time. Whereas now a month is like a, the blink of an eye, you know what I mean? Completely know what
1: you mean? And, yeah.
0: You know, and I've definitely learned that again, not to keep going back to that, but having kids, I've definitely learned, <laughs> you know, it goes by
1: quick so i don't even have kids um, i can feel it some of it's just age but some of it's the kids too like i watch i watch my friend's kids i'm uncle chris now and it's like you see even them growing up and yeah it changes things for sure
0: so i guess kind of before we start wrapping things up i know you know we referenced hopefully achilles will have something going on next year um and and like you said you're you're doing the thing with king's roads merch anything else you had going on or anything else you want to talk about anything before we start wrapping up man
1: shout outs uh, you know, I just want to mention one of the best things about that era is just, well, the best thing is all of the people, but especially all the people that I feel like I still keep in touch with and, you know, some more than others where it's like certain people like Matt, when Matt was getting ready for your episode, he reached out and we hadn't talked in a while, but it's like, you you never miss a beat with people like that. And, you know, after his episode, I reconnected a little bit with Mike Cernowski, who's in the UK now, so it's really hard for us to talk, me being in California, him being in England. It's like we had to schedule a timing that worked for both of us. But it's like people like that you never really miss a beat with. But there's people from that time and that scene that I still keep in really good touch with, like Oliver Kikich. I know you know him. And like him and Rory and I talk every day. We talk hoops. We talk poker. Uh, I hear from Dan Bress like religiously every couple months. He He'll just... I'll just get a text from him. He'll start asking me random questions about guitar or about something. He's just such a great person. Um, It's just like so good to carry on a conversation with. And like, I still hear from Tommy Vollmer sometimes. I just like wanted to make sure I mentioned all these people, obviously to me, the obvious ones, like I mentioned Tyler and Nick over and over, Jimmy and like all the Fairport guys and like even the Standfast dudes that were older at the time. It's like now every time I go back to Rochester, I go by Pizza Wizard and I see Brian and Jay Trevato and everybody. And it's, it still feels like home to Libby and I like, and it's definitely not just saying that it's something we still constantly struggle with because we love living out here in its own way. It's a very different existence, but we come back there and it sort of reminds us just how deep the roots are there. And it's just wild to think about all the people I still keep in touch with. And like, I listened to Ben Coten's episode of yours the other day, and that's a whole other angle. I feel like I didn't pay enough lip service to is like, you know, what came after us in the lineage and how cool it is to hear him talk about like the PBC shows we played with such gold and how important that was to him. Like, I have so much respect for Ben as a musician and like, he's so talented and like taking meds is an incredible band and, I actually went and saw them out here in Fullerton like a couple years ago when they were on tour, and I'm like rooting for all those guys still still doing it when I'm not still doing it. Um, so I just you know I love Rochester, I love that era, and I just wanted to make sure I mentioned some people.
0: Yeah, that's a really good tie-in to the Such Gold thing. I've, obviously, as you mentioned, I've had a couple of those guys on now, and and seeing there like them kind of take what you guys had taken from previous bands and and just went off and running with it. it was just so cool and and like you said just a talented dude i mean who decides you know he's another really good band you know i mean I'm, you know me i'm more into the, the hard shit so Definitely. they're good uh, though I, love, I wish i could have seen yeah, it. they played
1: band. they played that bug jar show like right after i left town i think unfortunately oh shit yeah
0: yeah well there's always good shit going on i'm sure there's always good shit going on there um yeah i'm sure we could have t- talked a lot more about achilles and polar bear club too so maybe we'll do a volume two when I get new John for the 12th time at some point, you know, so, I'm so down. Um but yeah, before I, I guess I, before I wrap up, uh, is there anything else you want to add or anything or?
1: No, oh, man, I think, I, I think we got to a lot. I, I feel like earlier on, I was maybe a little bit scatterbrained and skipped around in the chronology. So if you feel like you have to edit anything down or out, please. I didn't expect it to go this long. In fact, I told myself I would not go this long. I was like, ah, Matt's was an hour and whatever. I want it to be more like Max's, his is short. And I couldn't stop myself. So it's honestly, it's just really enjoyable talking to you about all this and, you know, edit it, make it sound cooler if you can or don't. And, you know, it's just been a real pleasure to do it, man. We're at about
0: the two hour mark, which I think is about uh, what I would have thought too. So I think it's pretty good. And I'm glad we finally were able to do this. Um, So I guess kind of wrapping up episode 97, I definitely want to thank Chris for taking his time to do the interview. Uh, As always, shout out to Rob Antonucci, Greg Benoit, and Jim Byrne for all their help with the podcast. Uh, Like I said, you're going to be seeing some changes to the podcast really soon. Everybody who's been supporting it and being a part of it for the last two and a half years is going to really enjoy what's coming. So uh, keep your eyes out for that. Thanks to my family for the never-ending support. Uh, Thanks everybody for listening. See everybody real soon and stay safe.